this morning is from the Gospel of John, chapter 14, verses 1 through 14. It will be found in the Pew Bibles in 1067. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with, with me, that you may also be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, Don't you know me, Philip, even after I have been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words that I say to you are not just my own. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the miracles themselves. I tell you the truth, anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. He will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father and I will do whatever you, I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. You may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. May the Lord bless his reading of his word. Thank you, Jim. Well, this is one message where I think it won't be difficult for me to grab your attention from the beginning. Uh, We love controversy. We love controversial statements. We love watching people try to deal with difficult questions. We like watching them squirm as they attempt to wrestle with difficult questions difficult subjects, and so I'm going to be dealing with a a very difficult and even controversial issue here, and so hopefully you can get some joy out of watching me squirm. But we are dealing here in this passage with with one of the most, at least in our culture today, one of the most controversial statements in all of the Bible. We're going through this series on the, called Jesus 101, we're looking at the I Am statements in the Gospel of John, and today we come to Uh, This particular I am statement, which I think is, without question, perhaps the most controversial of all of the the things that Jesus says, one of the most controversial things that he says, and of the I am statements, perhaps the most controversial, because, well, what does he say? He says in verse 6, and we're really going to hone in on verse 6 today, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father 
except through me. Jesus is claiming to be not simply a way to the Father, a way to God. He's saying he is the way to God. And so as Christians then, if we're followers of Jesus, listening to what Jesus says, well, then then we have to go along and we have to say, okay, Jesus is the only way. Boy, that just sounds arrogant, doesn't it? It sounds so arrogant. It feels arrogant to even say it. I think think our culture has conditioned us to feel like that's arrogant. Our culture has this perspective. You know, if if you think that your religious beliefs, if you think that your way is the way, well, then you're you're just you're arrogant, and so we kind of just kind of feels arrogant. What I want to do today is hopefully unpack that, that this, isn't, this isn't arrogant. Uh, that it isn't arrogant to believe that Jesus is the way. Now, uh, Christians certainly can be arrogant uh, in a lot of other ways. Uh, that would be another whole sermon or another whole series. Ways in which Christians can really be arrogant. But what I hope to show here is that, is that simply to believe that Jesus is the way is not in and of itself arrogant. Um, just to kind of take a step back and use sort of a mundane example, when we, when we talk about the way or saying that there's only one way to do something, we don't automatically assume that somebody is being arrogant for thinking that. I'll just sort of give you an example. Uh, my upstairs bathroom in our house, uh, there is only one way to get in and out of the bathroom. I mean, you know, um, there's really only one way that would not cause bodily harm or death or something like that. I mean, I suppose you could try to jump out the window. It's a 15-feet drop. You could try to punch a hole through the wall. Uh, you know, you could, I suppose you could try to do that. Uh, but, it, but basically, there's really only one way to get in and out of the bathroom in my upstairs bathroom. Some of you, I know, uh, you have your upstairs bathroom. There's two ways to get in, Right? Right, you've got the, the, the door that leads to the hallway and then the door that leads to the, to the bedroom. Right? But ours isn't like that. If the trustees at some point want to put in another door that leads into the, the bedroom, I'd be happy with that. Uh, but, but as of now, there is only one way to get in and out of our bathroom. And so if you came over to our house uh, for dinner and you needed to use the restroom, and I said, well, go ahead, you can use the upstairs bathroom. And if I said to you, but just know that uh, that when you're in there, be sure to come out the same way that you went in because there's only one way. Um, you might look at me like I'm a little bit weird, kind of an odd thing to say to somebody who's using the restroom, but you wouldn't think I was arrogant. You wouldn't think I was arrogant. I mean, you might think I was foolish. I mean, maybe I was wrong. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe, you know, when Laura and I go on vacation, the trustees are going to put in a, another door into the, into the... I'm not dropping any hints. I don't really even think it's possible. But suppose they, they, they put in another door while we're away on vacation. I come back, don't even realize it. And then you come over to the house and for dinner and you need to use the restroom. I say, well, go upstairs and you can use the upstairs restroom. Just be sure that when you go in, be sure to come out the same way you went in because there's only one way. And, and again, you might kind of laugh and, and, and just, you know, Kevin, just so weird that you always say that whenever somebody uses the upstairs restroom. Um, and you might say, actually, Kevin, it's not true. There actually is another way, right? And so, but you wouldn't think I was arrogant. You might think I was weird. You might think I was foolish. But you wouldn't think I was arrogant. 
And so I, I might say, if, if you're here and you're listening today, you, 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 might, you might think, okay, uh, Christians are wrong. They're just foolish. But, but not arrogant. You see, it, this goes for the same part to the second part of the statement as well. He says, I am the way, the truth. I am the way, the truth. Here, what Jesus is saying is, is what we find throughout the New Testament. And it is this incredible proclamation that Jesus is the embodiment of God himself. We just saying. Uh, the song that is based on Colossians 1.15, which says of Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God. The beginning of the Gospel of, of John, it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then it goes on to explain that the Word became flesh. That the Word that God became flesh came and came to this earth in the person of Jesus. And, and then, then you go on in, in John 10.30, uh, Jesus says, I and my Father are one. He's saying that I, Jesus, I, I am God. God is me. I am God. And, and I, know, I know that's confusing. My daughter still hasn't quite gotten this down yet. Um, sometimes when I'll pray with my daughter at the end, I'll say, thank you, Jesus. And she'll say, no, Daddy, it's thank you, God. And I'm like, okay, we're, we're going to have to work on that one, you know, but we'll, we'll, we'll get there. Now, that's, what, that's what this is saying. He's saying that he is the embodiment of God himself, that if you want to know what God is like, you look at, at Jesus. And so you, as Christians, we can't just place Jesus alongside uh, other religious figures. This isn't to say, this isn't to say that, that other religions don't have anything to contribute it isn't to say that they, they don't have anything uh, that is of use and helpful to our world. Not at all. But at the end of the day, we have to say you can't just place Christianity alongside other religions and, and as, as equally valid. You see, that's, that's what our culture says we should do. And that if you don't, then you're being arrogant. That, that, that the humble approach is to say, okay, all right, so you, you believe Jesus is the way, the truth. Okay, but that's just one perspective. That's just one perspective on the truth. And, and there are other religions that offer different perspectives. And so you, that, that's the humble approach is to recognize that they're all just offering different perspectives on the truth. And there's a, there's a story that goes with that, which some of you may have heard, an illustration that is a story that is often used to illustrate this idea of pluralism, which is really what this is about, this pluralistic view. And it's the story of a, of a king three blind men and an elephant. And let me just read to you uh, this, this story. One day, a king wanted to teach his court the truth about life and truth. He had an elephant brought into the courtyard of his palace and had his men find three blind men who were begging at the city gates. The blind men, obviously perplexed and a little anxious, asked the king what he would have them do. The king responded, I would like you to tell me about this elephant. The blind men, growing increasingly worried, said, Your majesty, we do not know what an elephant looks like, for we are blind. Ah, but you can feel it, can't you? asked the king. So the blind men reluctantly began to try and feel the elephant, hoping they would be able to answer the king's inquiry. 
the first man stepped up to the elephant's leg and began to put his hands and arms around it. After a while, he called out, O king, an elephant is much like a large tree. It is rough and knobby and very thick. I cannot even wrap my arms around it. The second man then said, How can this be? For when I felt the elephant, it it seemed to be very much like a plow with its shears. He had felt the tusks and the trunk. The third man chimed in saying, You are both entirely mistaken. The elephant is much more like a long slender brush. He said this because he had felt its tail. The king, his point having been made by the blind man, then tells his court that truth is much bigger than any one man or one religion can ascertain. It is far better to not limit ourselves to one system of thought and belief, but keep an open mind willing to learn what is true from all people. Now that sounds very nice. It sounds very humble. But we need to understand what's really going on here. Missiologist Leslie Newbegin responds to this and and says this. In the famous story of the blind man and the elephant, so often quoted in the interests of religious agnosticism, the real point of the story is constantly overlooked. The story is told from the point of view of the king and his courtiers who are not blind but can see that the blind men are unable to grasp the full reality of the elephant and are only able to get hold of part of the truth. The story is constantly told in order to neutralize the affirmation of the great religions to suggest that they learn humility and recognize that none of them can have more than one aspect of the truth. But of course, the real point of the story is exactly the opposite. If the king were also blind, there would be no story. The story is told by the king who claims to see the full truth, which all the world's religions are only groping after. It embodies the claim to know the full reality, which relativizes all claims of the religions and philosophies. It's it's claiming to know the very thing it's saying that we can't know. It's saying you can't know the truth. All you can know is a particular perspective of the truth. But, of course, that statement itself is saying, well, the the, the perspective that you must take is the perspective that says that all these other perspectives are just little perspectives. Well, what about the perspective that you just said was your perspective? Another way of saying this is that if it's arrogant to believe that your religious convictions are right over and against others, then everybody is arrogant. Because everybody believes that their convictions are right over and against everybody else's convictions. Even if your conviction is that all religions have equal, aspect, equal access to the truth, that's still a perspective that you think you are right on and everybody else is wrong if they don't agree. And so while it, it seems like uh, there, this view is affirming other Religions, in a sense, is kind of patronizing. It, it, it seems like it's being kind to the other religions, but in reality, it's saying you're actually wrong. You really need to see the perspective that I have. So if it's arrogant to say that Jesus is the only way, well, then it's arrogant to, to say that all religions are coming from different perspectives. So it isn't, it isn't arrogant. I don't think either we're all arrogant or it's not arrogant. So I'd say it's not, it's not arrogant to simply believe that your religious convictions are right. Now, how we do that and 
how we approach that and whatnot. That's where arrogance can come in. Now, again, that's another whole, another whole sermon. But to simply believe that your religious convictions are right over and against others is, is not arrogant. And so to believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life is not in and of itself arrogant. It might be foolish. It might be foolish. I could be wrong, right? And, and so if you're, if you're here today and you're not sure what you think uh, about Christianity or if you're listening to this online afterwards at a later time, uh, we don't stream our messages live because if we did that, then everybody would just stay home Sunday morning, right? And then we could we'd change our name to Bedside Baptist because everybody would just be staying home. So we don't stream it live, but you can listen to our messages afterwards. So if, if you're here today or you're listening to this online and, and you came in thinking, you know, Christians are so arrogant because they, they think that Jesus is the only way. And if you move from thinking we're arrogant to simply thinking that we're foolish, I will consider that a win. I would much rather you think us foolish than arrogant. However, I'd like to go for another win. Because I think not only is it not arrogant to believe that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life, but it is also not foolish. Now, there are ways in which Christians can be foolish, and, and, and one way that is related to this, which we have to be very careful about, is that it is not foolish to believe that Jesus is the only way and the only truth and the only life. But it does get foolish when we start claiming that we know with absolute certainty who and who has not found the way. We have to be very careful there, because as we're going to see what it means to find the way is a matter of the heart, and, and so we have to be very careful because ultimately only God can know the heart. So we have to be careful. It can be foolish if we start claiming that we know for sure who has and who hasn't found the way, but it is not foolish to claim that Jesus is the way. And to get at this, we have to think about this whole concept of this whole question, well, what is the way? What is the way to God? And And we have to realize that there is an underlying principle which even makes that question come up in the first place. To even ask the question, what is the way to God or are there many ways to God? There's some common ground in even asking that question and the common ground is simply this. If you're looking for the way to God, what it implies is that there is a distance between us and God. To even ask, is there a way, what is the way to God? is to imply that there is a, a distance that needs, to be, that needs to be dealt with. I mean, if you're, if you're sitting on your sofa in your home, then the question of what is the way to get to my home, that becomes an irrelevant question. It only becomes a relevant question when you're not at your house. Then it becomes, okay, well, what is the way? And so this question, and this is really what religion is, is trying to deal with is this, this basic question, this basic realization that there is a distance between us and God. And so the question is, what is that distance? What is it that's causing that gap? <clears throat> and the Bible's answer to this is very simple and very straightforward. One word sums up what it is that separates us from God. Sin. There is a such thing as right 
and wrong. God is the embodiment of truth, of justice, of righteousness. There is, there is a such thing as that which is, is, is right and true. And we may not always agree on the finer points of what that is. But at its, at its most fundamental level, what the Bible is saying is that there is such thing as right and wrong. And, and we, don't, we don't measure up to what God's standard is. That if you really got a glimpse of who God is and got a glimpse of his truth, you would realize that, 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 we, that we don't measure up. Again, not that we don't ever do anything right or ever do anything good. The Bible also teaches that we are created in the image of God. And so every single person on this planet, irrespective of their religious beliefs, there is an, a, a degree to which the image of God is reflected in them. But what the Bible is saying is that it is tarnished and that when we look at, at God's standard of holiness and goodness and righteousness, we realize uh, we just don't measure up. Sin, sin is what separates us. And so sin is this theme that runs throughout the Bible beginning in Genesis 3. And so we read through uh, the Bible and, and well, we read of, of Cain murders Abel. We read that that Jacob deceives Esau. Joseph's brothers betray Joseph. Amnon rapes Tamar. Judas betrays Jesus. On and on and on we read these stories of sin. And as Christians, you see, what we do is when we read these stories, we look at them and we say, that's me. That's me. I may not have actually murdered someone, but the anger that leads someone to murder, I have that same anger towards my brother, and it comes out in my words, it comes out in my actions. I have that same anger. I may not have committed the act of adultery, but those same desires those same desires for someone who is not my spouse in which I think and fantasize about what it would be like to be with that person. That's still in me. That's still in me. See, as Christians, we, we realize that, that there, is this, there is this gap. And so as we come to realize this, then, as we come to realize this, all we can do is join in with the prophet Isaiah, who when he got a glimpse of, of God, got a glimpse of his presence, all Isaiah could say is, woe is me, I am a man of unclean lips. When we come to understand the law, when we come to understand the commands that God has given us, all that we can do is join in with the Apostle Paul and say, what a wretched man I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? We come to, to walk in the presence of God, start to get a, a, a glimpse of it. All we can do is join in with Peter, who after hearing the crow, reminding him of his betrayal, all that he can do is fall on his knees and weep. See, at the heart of what it means to be a Christian, the beginning point is recognizing that there's a gap. There's this gap called sin and and this gap is not something that we can overcome on our own. 
when you, again, when you come to realize that the holiness of God, you realize that even on your best days, you're still not there. I mean, your, your heart still isn't there, and it's just not something that you can, you can, you can conquer yourself. And, and, and so this is why when you realize this, this gets rid of any sort of judgmentalism. Because you realize it's just silly to start comparing yourself with other people. It's silly to start comparing your righteousness over their righteousness. It's silly to boast about that because it, it, you, you boasting about that would be like an Englishman boasting to his French brother about how much closer he is to America than his French brother when the only way they can get there is to swim. I mean, really, you're going to brag about how much closer you are to America uh, than your French friend? When you got to swim, I mean, neither one of you is going to get there. You, you can say, okay, I'm, I'm an arrogant American. I don't, I don't know if the, the French really want to try to swim over here or not, but whatever. But you see, it's like it, it becomes silly to, 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 to compare ourselves with others when you realize that, that gap. When we start judging and when we start, we start boasting about ourselves and, and having a sense of moral superiority over others, what that signifies is that we really just don't get the gap. See, when you do, when, when, when that becomes impressed upon you and as you become more and more aware of that, you see, what you come to realize then is that the only way, the only way you will ever get to God is by His grace. It's the only way. The only way, the only way you could ever be back in God's presence is through His grace. The only way is through His forgiveness. The only way is if God will take our sin upon Himself. If He will take it, if He will absorb the weight of our sin, that's what it means to forgive someone. Right? When you forgive someone, that's what you're doing. You're absorbing the weight of their offense. If somebody wrongs you uh, physically, uh, spiritually, uh, financially, if somebody wrongs you, you have one of two choices, right? Uh, you can either say, I'm going to make them pay. I'm going to make them pay back for what they did. Or you can forgive. And to forgive is just to take it. To just absorb it. The heart of the gospel, the heart of Christianity, and only Christianity, is that God has come, and in a a tangible, historical way, He has come into this world, and on the cross, He has taken upon Himself the sin of the world. Other religions can talk about forgiveness, but you do not find anything like the cross, where it's not just a nice idea that God forgives, but it becomes a concrete and historical reality in the person of Jesus. So the irony here is that I think At the end of the day, it can never be arrogance that leads a Christian to say that Jesus is the only way. It's humility. It's the humility that says, I don't don't measure up. Who who am I? It's humility that says, my only hope is God's grace. And so when, when when we say to others, we say, Jesus is the only way, what we're really saying is, look, I've looked inside my own heart. And I've seen the gap 
And I've seen that the only way I could ever be right with God is if this Jesus thing is real. That's the only way. And and I humbly suggest that if you would look in your own heart, you would see the same thing. And so I, I think, and again, I say this humbly, I think that I would suggest that if, if you struggle to, to, if you struggle with the idea that Jesus is the only way, is it possible that you haven't really come to terms with the depths of your own sin? You see, when we start to struggle with, I don't know if it could be the only way, is it possible that the reason for that is that you haven't really come to grips with the depths of your own sin? Because I think that if you do, you'll just come to realize this, this has to be it. Jesus is the way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. The heart of the gospel is not, oh, you're a sinner, now you're in trouble. The heart of the gospel is that God has come in the flesh. He has come. He has died on the cross to forgive us of our sins. And if we will just confess our sin before him, if we will just profess our need for him, then he will come, he will forgive us, and we can enter into eternal life. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus says in verses, let's see, verse verse 2, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. Now, there's a lot that's going on in those verses. Ultimately, this fits into the big vision that we find in the New Testament, that ultimately there will come this day when Christ will return. He will come back, and he will renew, and he will restore all things, that the biblical picture of eternity is this incredible vision of God renewing and restoring all things and, and us living in, in perfect community uh, with one another, uh, of us being able to, to live out uh, our, our gifts and our abilities to, to, to be fully human. Uh, I, I like to say that eternity is, is not so much uh, the dream vacation as it is your dream job, <laughs> that, it, that it's you becoming fully who God intended for you to for you to be, and so, so that, that, that's sort of the big picture. But, but here in this passage, John is honing in on what is at the very heart of eternity and at the very heart of eternal life, and that is simply being in the presence of God. In my Father's house, there are many rooms. Father's house, the only other time Jesus uses that terminology in the Gospel of John is when he's talking about the temple. And so he's talking about that place where heaven and earth intersect. He's talking about being in the presence of God. And so what we see here is that at the very heart of eternal life is being in the presence of God. And what this helps us to see then is, you see, this, you see, this whole message, we, we might think that this whole message is just geared towards non-Christians. In some respects it is, but, 
But actually, I think one of the things we need to realize is that it isn't just non-Christians who deny that Jesus is the way. It's not just non-Christians who deny that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Because you see, we deny that every time we look to something other than God himself as our ultimate source of life. We deny that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Every time we look to something other than God as our ultimate source of life. We deny that Jesus is the way when when our career becomes that which we look to to give us life. When our success in that becomes the way to life. We deny that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life when when we look to material things, when we look to our our financial prosperity and our enjoyment of material things, when that becomes our ultimate source of life. Not not that any of these things are bad, of course, but but when they become the thing that is the most important to us and we look to them for life, well, then we're really denying that Jesus is the way. When, When our own religion, our own religiosity becomes that which we look to for life, when our, our reputation within the, 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 the Christian community and, and, and what it's, my life comes from people thinking that, that I'm a good moral person and that, that becomes my source of life is, is having uh, you know, approval from, from people within the religious community and that, that becomes my source of life. We're actually denying that Jesus is the way because you see in all of those different ways in which we can seek to find life, You see, you can do all of those and never really deal with your sin. You can seek to find life in in all of those things and never really have to deal with your your sin. I mean, if you you seek to find life in your your career success, you see, sin isn't going to separate you from that. In fact, sin might even help. Sometimes sin might actually help you to to pursue and succeed and whatnot. So sin isn't going to separate you from trying to find life in your career. Uh, Sin isn't going to separate you from trying to find life in material things. In fact, one way of understanding what sin is, is the overindulgence of material things. So obviously sin isn't going to separate you from that. And actually, sin won't even separate you uh, if you're trying to find life in in your religious or moral reputation. Well, it will to a certain extent. Uh, you see, if you're seeking to find your life in your religious or moral reputation, then, then you have to make sure that your external sins are dealt with. Right? You, you have to be careful uh, what it looks like to those on the outside. But what actually is going on in your heart, you don't actually have to deal with. I mean, if you want your reputation to be, if you want life to come from your religious and moral reputation, well, then you better not commit adultery. You better not commit murder. But you know what? Nobody's really going to know what you're thinking in your heart. So, you see, you don't really have to deal with that if that's where you're looking to find life. But if you seek to find life in the only place where it really can be found, in my Father's house, in the presence of God, then you're going to have to say that Jesus is the only way. Because then you have to deal with that sin. The heart of the gospel is that life 
is found in God himself. But there is a, there is a distance between us and God. And if we acknowledge that, if we acknowledge our sin, if we realize that, well, you're just going to come to realize that the cross is the only way. That Jesus is the only way. And when you profess that, you can be welcomed into the presence of God no matter what you have done. Let's pray. Dear God, we come before you. And we acknowledge the gap. I pray that we would acknowledge the gap, Lord. I pray that that you would convict us of that. God, I pray for those here or those listening who have yet to profess faith in Christ and that, that they would come to see their own sin. God, I pray for those of us who have professed to be believers for many years that, that we would return to this. That we would not become prideful or boastful. But that we would just look deeper and deeper into our own hearts and see more and more our need for your grace. God, I pray that as we do so, we would find the incredible joy that comes from knowing that we're forgiven, that we're loved, and we can be welcomed into your presence. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.